Once Upon a Time, Season 5, Episode 17 is over, but we are just getting started here on Once Upon a Recap. Hello, all you magical people out there. My name is Mike Bloom, one of the co-hosts of Once Upon a Recap. Now I'm joined by a guy who just sent me a big bouquet of hopelessness, Kurt Clark. Kurt, how you doing? Doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Um, I believe this is uh, the official, uh, this was the official episode where we thought that uh, Emma would have rescued Hook from the underworld by now. And it is officially, we are officially in the underworld longer than we had expected to be. Wow. Who would have thought that as quickly as Once Upon a Time moves? And again, we're talking about that plot element might not have moved quickly, but something that did move quickly was a developing plot from the last episode where Gold and Bell seem to be on the outs. They seem to come back together within 42 minutes, but at a cost slightly. But yeah, I guess, you know, it seems more and more that people are coming down to the underworld rather than people going from the underworld at this point. Yeah, it's... um it's although we we start to see the kind of the the increased impact that uh the slow trickle of people out of the underworld is having on on underbrook um and we get, and it's kind of interesting getting to see i thought Hades reaction to that but we'll, we'll get more into uh the the wilted flowers and theories around that as well yeah, well, I mean, speaking of wilted flowers, we do have a Beauty and the Beast-esque storyline going on here, not just because of Belle and Gold, the Beauty and the Beast analog, but we get a character from the movie uh, in our Once Upon a Time setting in Gaston. Gaston is sort of our flashback guy of the week here. Uh, Kurt, uh, they talked a little bit about this in the preview for the last episode. Uh, when you found out that this episode was going to feature Gaston, specifically a recast Gaston, what were your feelings towards it? Because we haven't seen him since like two scenes in one episode in season one. Yeah. Um, you know what? I was actually, I was actually looking forward to it. Uh, I, I think I kind of liked these uh, he, it was, it was interesting back in, in, I think that was, that was episode 12 where he, you know, comes in very briefly. He's like, he said, he's just in a couple scenes and then he immediately gets turned into a flower, um, and kind of destroyed. Uh, but, uh, I, I was looking forward to seeing like kind of where they took this again. This is one of those characters we'd said at the, at the beginning of uh, season, uh, five and a half that, there's all these characters that are no longer with us that could turn up. And I completely forgot that Gaston was, was one of those. So I was looking forward to seeing uh, where this potentially went, especially with bell and gold slash Rumpelstiltskin on the rocks uh, with Gaston back on the scene. Where might this, where might things go? So I was, I was, I was looking forward to it. Despite the trickery in the, previously on segment where they swapped (laughs) in the new actor for the old scene. Yeah. Now, do you think, thinking about a little bit of behind the scenes, do you think they actually had the actor come in and actually reshoot? Or do you, do you think they like put him on a soundstage in a big blue suit and just kind of CGI'd his face onto the body of the old actor? Ooh, it might be somewhere in between. Um, I, I think there might, I don't think it was necessarily just the, the face on the old actor. I don't know. I, I didn't want to go back. I didn't go back and, and look at it that closely. Um, but uh you know, it, it wasn't necessary. I think they, I think they probably still had the CGI background uh, from that scene. So they could have easily just had him come on and do a really quick shot. Um, so I don't think it was necessarily that time or labor intensive. So I'm hoping that they went through and actually put a little bit of time into it. 
And I do have to give them a, a thumbs up here in a couple different ways. First, I, I do like this idea that I think when we initially saw Gaston in that season one episode, at least in my opinion, I thought it was sort of written off as like almost a meta joke. Like, oh, in the movie, he's her big handsome hero, but he serves as, the, as this main antagonist. But no, he's sort of reduced to having three lines and get, then gets turned into a flower and gets his stem snipped. And apparently that's how he died. But I'm happy that they were able to kind of dive back into the well and pull him off and dust him off a little bit and turn him <laughs> into a, you know, a really big factor in both this episode and Bell's development overall. So I guess you apparently can pull Gaston out of the well and reuse him. It's just those pages from the, uh, the storybook <laughs> that you cannot retrieve from the well. Right? Yeah, exactly. No, he, uh, he was standing, he's, you know, he's super strong. Right. He was able to, you know, put, put his hands and feet up against the walls of the well. And he was able yeah. to hold himself up there for four seasons. And I do also, like this idea of you know basically sweeping the other actor under the rug i believe with robin hood the first time we saw sean mcguire play the role in season three i believe they did do a previously on with robin hood since he made an appearance in season two and again i might be remiss remembering things i don't think they use sean mcguire i think they use the previous actor which we talked about this before we recorded at least these two gastons were like relatively similar body type the old Robin Hood was like really slim and wiry, much like the fox, the anthropomorphic fox from the Disney film, whereas Sean McGuire is beefy and stocky. Uh, these guys at least seem more comparable that they could, you know, one could very easily slide into the other's role and nobody would be the wiser. Yeah, the actor's name is slipping right now. He's he's the main, he plays Lucifer on Lucifer. He's the, uh, you know, the taller British chap. But yeah, very, very, two very different uh, takes on on Robin Hood. But uh, yeah, this this was, this was like, I, I didn't realize it was, honestly didn't realize it was a different actor until I kind of went back and, and looked it up because something seemed a little funny. But because I was like surprised that they got somebody to come back uh, so long and just kind of reprise that role. Uh, but they did it for the witch uh, in the in gingerbread house. So may, may, maybe yeah. it wasn't that far out of the realm of possibility. But, yeah, exactly. But it was also nice because like you didn't really get this. I mean, from those two scenes back in season one, you didn't really get the sense that Gaston is this like uh, cad, uh, 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 French douche, uh, uh, you know, character to be hated necessarily. And so it was interesting that, you know, I think you got a lot more out of the character here. And I really liked when he's like being introduced and he's, you know, chatting with Belle, and I'm sure we'll get to this, is that, you know, all of what we know about Gaston from the Beauty and the Beast movie and the kind of all of the, uh, you know, praise and accomplishments he, he kind of plays that off as you know one of his friends spreads these these incredible lies about him just to, to embarrass him and so i was I, I kind of thought that was an interesting take on the character yeah for like the first 30 minutes and then yeah. it's interesting kind of comparing <laughs> that to the movie where yes gaston is not necessarily portrayed in the most positive light for the majority of beauty and the beast but there is a good point in both that movie and this episode where almost a heel turn happens and everyone kind of looks at back at Gaston and is like, oh, you're you're kind of a sociopath and you have kind of a murderous streak in your eye, which I enjoyed that parallel as well, because, you know, Once Upon a Time likes to take these fairy tale stories or stories from their most classic movies and really just spin the heck out of them. And so I was happy that they were able to at least go back to that source material in that regard. Yeah, it was it was it was nice that they they had a chance to kind of explore it further. Um, I'm still hoping for a little bit more exploration of the Little Mermaid storyline. Um, you know, we we haven't seen a, a lot of kind of what goes on in her life, uh, and you know, and we've seen we briefly saw have seen a uh, Prince Eric in Storybrooke, but uh, that's 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 another time, another story. 
Yeah, let's let's focus on this story right now. And I want to get through all the flashback stuff first, because I feel like for the first time in a good while, we're talking about the Ogre Wars here. And obviously, this takes place before uh, Bell's father, Maurice, decides to broker a deal with Rumpelstiltskin. And, you know, in exchange for safety, he basically sells his daughter away to her. Uh, so it seems like we're pre-war at the moment, though. Skirmishes have been firing up, and her father is obviously very worried, which is why he reached out to... And again, I don't have closed captioning on. <laughs> so you, got it right. I heard, you got it right. You got it right. I heard it. Lord. I heard Lord Legume. That's exactly it. They they, they capitalized the G, um, but uh, yeah, uh, he's uh, uh, the son of a peanut. His son. He's the son <laughs> of Mister Peanut. Apparently, I guess, but uh, I guess Gaston's just missing a a monocle. That's that's the the main thing that we're that we're and a cane and a top hat. That would have been quite awesome. I mean, it's the Enchanted Forest now in Candyland for the season, Kurt. That's what it feels like. You know, I can't wait for King Licorice to talk to Ruby and Mulan next episode. Well, she but, had to get she had to get that that mirror uh, from the I believe the molasses swamp. So it, oh it's, it's some nice tie-ins, some nice tie-ins. Yeah, exactly. I had to go through the candy cane forest as well. So basically, the king comes in with uh, a proposition for her that he's going to make a very similar one at, at the end. So it's nice bookends for the bookworm. Essentially, we need to broker a deal in order uh, to get their troops. So uh, I want you to, you know, hang out with his son, Gaston. And Belle has this. Re- she talks about what you talked about before. Gaston kind of has this reputation of being a cad and a flirt. Uh, and Gaston enters. And Gaston, for the most part, as you said, seems r- relatively normal. He says, like, look, I know this is awkward. This is the Middle Ages. We do this these things, but it's still awkward. You're not forced to do anything. No worries. But Bell seems kind of charmed by how low-key he is, so they decide to go on a walk together. Yeah, a nice little walk through the woods. And um, and it... Although there there is a little glance there... Uh, towards the end of the conversation with Gaston, where she does look back at her father, where it seems to me like she's still maybe not that interest, not that interested in him, uh, in, in Gaston, and that she still is more so doing this as a favor to her dad than out of any interest in forming a true romantic bond with Gaston. But at the very least, I think she walks into this thinking, well, you know what? He's much more tolerable than I expected. I need to at least play nice. And, 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 but it, it does ultimately seem just from that little glance that she is still doing this as a favor to Pops. Now, last week, we talked a little bit about how at least we believe that we weren't sure about Hades' true intentions and with the stuff he was telling Zelina, if he actually meant it or if there was some sort of underlying intention in there. I mean, did you get the same sense from Gaston here? We will find out later on that he's going to do things like he didn't necessarily lie about the fact that he was attacked by the ogre. He did kind of goaded into attacking him. Uh, but it seems like he is capable of some malicious intentions when something tries to attack him. So do you feel like his flirting here with Belle is sincere or do you think he's still kind of trying to game her at this point? Um, I'm really not sure because like, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the, the emergence of the dark side of, of Gaston uh, as we kind of progress through this flashback. I mean, at, at this point, you know, he's, you know, he's got this reputation. I mean, it, I mean the way that Bell phrases it as is a hunter of women. And um, and so I it, whether you what, what's the ulterior possible ulterior motive is he it's, it's kind of like one of two things. One, um, he just wants to get with Bell and he's trying to be more charming than he and than he and nice guy than he actually is. Or two, he's actually not interested in her, but wants to form this relationship out of the 
can so the two the two uh, kingdoms or whatever can combine. Um, I I don't know at at the beginning at least. I, I get the sense that he's it feels like he's actually interested in her at this point. It, it, and, and I really felt like he was a good guy at this point. Yeah, I would say so at this point. But again, when they bring up, oh, there are these rumors that you're a womanizer and he says, no, they're all false. It's very easy, easy for him to say that and yeah. for nobody to do real any real fact checking. It, and it turns out like, yes, you are a womanizer and you just say that. Nor to you know bring women closer to yeah. you. The jury's still out for me on that one. I, I think there's like some, um, and well, uh, we I guess we can talk about like you know what, who is the real Gaston when we get to the kind of the big reveal in this. But I'm not necessarily so sure that he is a womanizer. I actually took him at face value that uh, that you know his friend was spreading lots of these rumors. I do believe he is like a very avid hunter and that he does have a cruel streak. I don't necessarily. Uh, think that least in this case that goes hand in hand with him being a womanizer so if you could assign a britney spears song to describe gaston <laughs> it would be toxic and not womanizer um i'm yeah you, i'm trying to think of it there's probably lots of oops i did it agains in there as well um, <laughs> well that's that that's gonna be bell bell's theme this episode of just <laughs> making mistake after mistake well i thought it was gonna be oops i did it again in terms of she technically was the one that killed him the first time <laughs> by cutting the stem on the rose uh, and uh and technically she also killed him again in this one um, oh boy so yeah so he's toxic she's oops i did it again I love this. I, hopefully we can continue with this theme of assigning our characters with Britney Spears songs for the rest of the season. You may have completely tapped me out of my knowledge of Britney Spears songs. I'm sorry, <laughs> listeners. Uh, I tried. I'm, I don't think Hit Me Baby One More Time is probably uh, going to apply to anybody in this, hopefully. Um, maybe The Ogre. Or maybe or maybe, uh, maybe uh, Snow White <laughs> in terms of she kind of gets taken down more than once potentially. But uh, I don't know. Like by, by the, 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 the shadowy creature. Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Side, side so, story. So uh, Gaston and Bells, if you want to call it flirting, if you want to call it just friendship forming, it's interrupted by the fact that they find this giant pit where an ogre is trapped, a CGI ogre, which actually I think is pretty well done. Uh, Definitely in comparison to some scarecrows that we've seen in the recent. I was was fine with the scarecrow. Uh, (laughs) Can we call it? We can't call I'm, this guy Shrek, can we? Just for licensing purposes. No, you yeah. are you are making a scarecrow <laughs> argument right now, or a straw man argument straw for man the argument. scarecrow at this point. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so they find the ogre, and Belle is very much representative of the character in Beauty and the Beast. Uh, says, you know, Gaston immediately wants to kill it, uh, but Belle says, no, I think there's a way that you know we can utilize it for peacekeeping measures. Uh, and so, you know, she asks, can you trust me? He says, sure. And so they go to the library. And this is where, again, Belle's bookishness comes into play. And uh, they try to look through everything. And they really just can't find uh, anything to really help with their ogre problem for now. But she brings up this book, which is the title of the episode. And I believe it's a book that's been shown a couple other times in the show called Her Handsome Hero, which will eventually be the book that she finds in his locker at the uh, at the pet shelter. Well, and to- it's a Go ahead. Oh, see, to be fair, they do find that alphabetized inventory of magical antiquities, which does end up at least progressing the plot further. It does. It's it points them in direction of that of the um, of, of something that could potentially help them out of the situation. If Once Upon a Time was a giant megalith series for ABC, what do you think the chances are that the uh, the encyclopedia of magical items would actually be an actual book that comes out during the off season? Pretty good. I, I, or at least at the very least a web property. So you could download a PDF of it. 
Yeah, exactly. So her handsome hero kind of dials into sort of an underlying theme of this Bell Gold Gaston storyline here, which is what are quote unquote the true qualities that make a hero? Uh, and she, Bell, is championing this whole idea of how compassion and forgiveness make a hero. Though we'll find out from Gold and Gaston's perspective, it might be of more of the physical variety and, and how rev- you can ha- exact revenge and still be a hero in their opinion. Yeah, it's two very different perspectives on what makes a hero. Uh, I kind of like how how Bell is taking what is probably Gaston's probably right. This is probably kind of a a little bit of a, a you know, pot boiler romance novel. Um, and I'm wondering if just because, you know, Belle has a soft spot for it, if she's taking kind of this, this deep literary interpretation of a book that was never really meant to be interpreted that way. But, but at least there's something that rings true about the idea that a true hero is about compassion and forgiveness. And, and um, so, uh, and, and Gaston at the very least, he does initially look like he's not buying it, but he's like, you know, if this is indeed your favorite book, I will, I, I shall read every word twice. Um, I hope that means he'll read the book twice and not literally like every word twice one, in one pass. <laughs> once, once upon, 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 upon a, a time, time bell. I don't, I don't really get any meaning out of this. It's very repetitive. <laughs> this is really hard, man. <laughs> so, uh, the mirror of souls. Let's, let's talk about this for a second. This is an object that bell, uh, is able to figure out through that magical encyclopedia. I believe we've seen mirrors in the past. Obviously the spell of shattered sight was, uh, linked to that spell, the uh, the the story of the Snow Queen and the mirror. But I believe this is the first time we've seen the Mirror of Souls, right, Kurt? Yeah, and it's um, and I'm wondering if there's any relationship between this and the River of Lost Souls, um, which will will, will get, also makes an appearance. Uh, but I believe this is the first time that we have seen this. Of course, uh, listeners, if we are incorrect, please let us know. Uh, but uh, it's. It does at least set up. It's it's interesting. The whole you know beauty and the beast storyline is one that is filled with kind of a warehouse thirteen for you sci fi watchers out there. Kind of a, a a huge inventory of magical antiquities. I mean, there are scenes from uh, the beast's quote unquote castle um, that where you see. All, I think I remember in one prior season we saw Thor's hammer in there, and it seems yeah. that we even talked about how in the pa- in the pawn shop uh, in the Underbrook we saw the two puppets that were um, uh, Jiminy or Pinocchio's parents. Um, and or sorry, Geppetto's parents. Um, so I, I, it's it's interesting that throughout uh, these different the, the beauty and the base storyline, you do end up kind of running into a, a bunch of different random magical items that could potentially help you. Uh, so I, 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 and that's something I kind of enjoy. And uh, if we're connecting this back to the movie as well, I mean, the enchanting mirror in the movie was more so like a portal where you can see what's going on at any, at any point in time. You could just say, you know, show me so-and-so, whereas here is more so a, a lie detector, if you will, uh, or like, you know, a veriserum from Harry Potter, where you basically, if someone looks in the mirror and their eyes glow red, their souls are dark. One more thing I want to talk about, the uh, her handsome hero, hero before we move on. I think the connection back to Belle's mother is interesting as well. I know, yeah. Kurt, you were talking about how she kind of interpreted this book to say that a hero is all about, you know, forgiveness and compassion. But I think there is a connection back to her mother here. And I, I think, I don't know how long this takes place after Belle's mother is killed by an ogre, but I think this is probably a big 
emotional item in terms of holding significance uh, and had probably has a very big connection to her mother. And she probably considers her mother one of her biggest heroes because of her forgiveness and compassion. So I feel like even if the book just had gobbledygook in it, because of the way her mother was, those ideas are going to be linked to this book no matter what. But if the Ogre Wars haven't happened yet, if all this happens before the Ogre Wars, is Belle's mother still alive at this point? No, I believe the events still take place afterwards because they still, I think they still talk about her mother. And again, listeners, feel free to correct yeah. me on that. But I believe in the timeline, I think there there have been like attacks that have popped up here and there, but oh, there okay. has not been an all out war as of yet that we're about to see right now. You know, the the Pearl Harbor, if you will, that leads into the Ogre War. Right. You definitely got the vibe from this episode that her mom is no longer with us. Um, it, it just I, I could not remember if there were the kind of multiple attacks on the kingdom then, because uh, obviously the whole uh, kind of reason that that Bell gets sold off to Rumpelstiltskin is is to kind of, you know, in, in, in exchange for protection from the Ogres, correct? Yeah, it's basically right. like, hey, you're an, you're a giant, you know, you're a, an all powerful magical being. Right. We need your protection, and in exchange, right. you can have my daughter. And I believe this is also went. Yeah, so in, in that case, yeah, in that case, then that, that makes sense. Is that the uh, they've been attacked previously before, uh, and you know, Rumpelstiltskin held true to his word this time. Yeah, and it's interesting to also see. I mean, I, I'm sure there's an ogre war timeline out there somewhere, and I'm not entirely sure where the Rumpelstiltskin mythology ties in here as well, because Rumpelstiltskin was fighting in the ogre wars as well. So, how long did it take? You know, was Bell living with Gaston for a number of years while Rumpelstiltskin, you know, tried to find the ogre wars, ran away, hurt himself on purpose, became the dark one? And became the person that we know today, and then this deal happened. I, I'm wondering what the how everything kind of pans out on that timeline. Yeah, true. It's 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 um. I'm I'm, I'm trying to quickly. Uh, yeah, the, the 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 once upon a time wiki does confirm that there have been uh, multiple ogre wars. Um, so yeah, that, that are we in, are we in ogre war two then? Uh, they, they're even saying that there's probably even a third one. Um, uh, or a, a post ogre war, uh, but yeah, the there, there's multiple, and that was like yeah, exactly. Uh, Rebel Silkin so, stopped the first ogre war when he became the Dark One. Um, Granny's six brothers, as well as her father, all veterans of the second ogre war, and Bell makes a deal with Rebel Silkin to save her village uh, during a possible third ogre war. Okay, so there we are possibly dealing with. Multiple orga wars here. War, what is it good for, folks? You know, Absolutely they, nothing, especially when it comes to timelines. You know, if they never even like technically had a truce with the ogres, it's technically just one big long war. <laughs> exactly, with just a couple of breaks in between. <laughs> exactly. So Gaston agrees, okay, we'll do it your way, because you know, I'm I'm kind of lusting after you at this point. <laughs> and so Belle and her father go out to with the mirror, Belle's able to grab the mirror. Apparently, there's no sort of misadventures that happen as they usually do on Once Upon a Time when they try to grab a magical relic. But when they go out to find the ogre, they find Gaston is knocked out. And, you know, Gaston wakes up and he gives the story that, you know, the ogre attacked him. And they say, okay, we're going to organize a hunting party to go after this beast. And Belle insists on going along, but they, you know, push her away and refuse. Again, a big parallel to the movie. But I don't know, Kurt, maybe it's because I was kind of skeeved out by Gaston to begin with, but as soon as I saw him knocked out in the middle of the woods, I thought, like, something, something's in this. This is not at face value. 
Oh, and you know, and even I, who was not skeeved out by Gaston at the very beginning, was like, I think we're all thinking the same thing here. This is this this is this is a ruse, and you know, especially when uh, you know Bell's father like wants to kind of have you know return with the hunting party. Gaston's like, well, no, can I lead it? Can I lead it? You know, this this is this is all me. Um, so I I completely at this point I did a one eighty on on Gaston. I'm like, yeah, I'm not buying what you're selling, dude. Yeah, and it doesn't help in this next scene when the hunting party does pursue. And of course, Belle being Belle disobeys her father and decides to follow them. And she gets to them at the right time because they find the ogre kind of cornered and Gaston is about to basically strike it down when Belle literally stands between them. Uh, And Gaston actually kind of throws out, I guess, his thesis statement, which is basically like, well, you hit me first. So essentially he feels like since the ogre attacked him, he has all the reason in the world to strike him back. But when Bell uses the mirror to stop the arrow, which I would say probably reason number, uh, you know, the first time that Bell probably makes a not so smart decision, because uh, tr- I don't believe, you know, glass can really stop a projectile that much. But through the the one fragment left of the mirror, she's able to see Gaston's eyes glow red, and he reveals very quickly that, you know, yes, the ogre, I was prompting the ogre, and the ogre attacked me, and that's now I want to get my revenge. Yeah, and it almost seems like that he, and anyway, I I didn't even necessarily take it. I, I what I'm thinking happened is that Gaston attacked the ogre, and the ogre escaped, or Gaston. Uh, uh, you know, basically released the ogre and faked his own injuries. I didn't even, I don't necessarily even think that the, the ogre attacked him because you saw how, you know, tortured the, the ogre was. Um, you know, part of me is even thinking that he, he tortured the ogre and then released him in order to basically have a reason to go off and hunt him. Uh, cause I think if they came back to a tortured ogre, that would kind of, you know, spell doom for Gaston right there. I, I, I didn't, at first I thought I was going to have to go back and rewind it. Cause it seems like there's really just a brief second when the arrow strikes the mirror and shatters it, you see Gaston's reflection in it very briefly. And it looked like he had red glowing eyes in it. And I thought I was going to have to go rewind it and pause it to see if that was true. But luckily there's still kind of, but then it does go to that next uh, little, um, there's still that shard of the mirror and bell does see the reflection of Gaston in the mirror and, and kind of sees the truth there. Um, because I think it would have been interesting if she hadn't seen that. If 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 we if we had only seen it very briefly and uh, Bell didn't, and there's going to I didn't know if we would potentially have more backstory with Gaston. Um, uh, yeah, but I, there was this kind of a you know he's a monster. No, you're the monster. And I like the meaningful exchange between the ogre and Bell when the ogre kind of takes off and she, they release him. It was nice. Yeah. And I like, you know, Belle is, again, she's in total Belle mode right now. She basically has this, like, you gotta go through me thing, where even though Gaston's intentions have been revealed, he still raises his bow here, and Belle's like, oh no, you're gonna have to, you know, kill me to get to this ogre. And again, as much as we may, we may be talking about Gaston being a womanizer, I think at this point, he does have at least some feelings for Belle, considering that or maybe it's just, you know, logic that he doesn't want to kill this woman in front of her father, her very powerful father and all of these you know, armed men. But he decides to let the ogre go. And, you know, he kind of says through his teeth, like, you know, I hope you're I hope this works out. And it turns out, of course, it didn't work out. And the ogre wars are about to begin. Yeah. And, and to be fair, it's like there's there's lots of interesting commentary on evil and darkness in this episode and this is i think one of those things i think just because um 
like for instance, I my interpretation of it was that Gaston had you know kind of evil in his soul, but it was really kind of focused on in terms of really not having care for uh, other living things. Like it, I think I think like if it had been a human, he wouldn't necessarily have done it. But in terms of he's kind of painted as a hunter, um, and that's also kind of reflects his punishment in the underworld. Um, how he's not allowed to hunt and kill things; uh, he has to take care of them. And so I, I kind of think he looked at the uh, the anything that's less than human is just his plaything and something that he is free to kill. I think I, I do. I still am not saying that he we have no evidence that he's a womanizer disavow. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, he, there is this this darkness in his soul. And I think it's very much focused on one thing. One thing that we do have to keep in mind, though, the one of the things that kind of irked me about this little ep- about this episode is uh Looking at this final scene in the flashback, which kind of happened at the end of the episode, um, it, throughout the entire episode, where Belle is discovers that Gastona's in under um, in the underworld and she's trying to kind of connect with him, she knows this entire time that he has evil in his soul, mm-hmm. and that's and that makes makes you kind of look at the entire thing a little bit differently and kind of question some of her decisions throughout. Yeah. And well, let's talk about this scene because Belle's father walks in and basically says, you know, hey, your idea to let the ogre go. And I, I have to defend Belle here, at least for a couple seconds, because it is pretty BS that her dad comes in and his initial thoughts are, it's your fault because you let that one ogre go. Now the ogre wars have begun and they're attacking. I very highly doubt, even in a fantastical fairy tale setting, that that was the impetus to really start off this entire conflict. No, I, I agree. Um, I mean, it, it sounded like, you know, the, 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 ogres are already amassing at the borders before this whole thing took place. So, you know, don't blame it on your daughter. That's not, you're not getting father of the year for that one. Yeah. Though I, he does relent a little bit as well. And it seems like he's very clearly pressured and frustrated by this escalating situation, which then causes him to say, double down on this whole, whole Lord legume thing and say, okay, listen, you got to chew these peanuts now. Uh, you, you, you're, you have to do what it takes and basically marry Gaston. Uh, and I think he actually positions this very interestingly. He almost sweetens the deal to Bell here where he says, you can be a hero. And he kind of says like, you are saving the kingdom by agreeing to marry Gaston. And it'll, it'll turn out that that won't be the case because Bell will, or uh, Maurice will eventually go to Rumpelstiltskin to be the hero and save the day almost. But I think, you know, since Bell kind of has that idea of being a hero in her head from these books, and having already possessed the qualities of compassion and forgiveness, as soon as you throw that word hero out to her, I feel like she's like a dog yapping. She's like, oh, great. Do, I'll do whatever I can as long as I can be considered a hero. And it's also interesting is kind of Gaston's, um, uh, you know, kind of demeanor toward her in this. You kind of described this at the beginning as a bookend. Like this, it's very similar to their first meeting, but it's so similar that like he's not approaching her and talking to her about this, like with his tail between his legs, you know, metaphorically, um, or it's, it, it's almost as if, and like, is as the, the prior events, like, and you know, him knowing that she saw the evil in his soul, it's almost as if that never happened in terms of at least his approach to her. And that's kind of a sociopathic thing. (laughs) Yeah, and it, yeah, I and I know that this is probably the last we'll see of Gaston, uh, and it sucks that they had to recast the actor for only this one episode. But I would like to see now that again we're we're fleshing in Belle's storyline a little bit. I would be interested to see 
this time at Gaston's castle and how their relationship is. Because I agree, it's almost a little unsettling. And it, I, I do agree with you that it, the demeanor at which he approaches her is not different at all from the very first time he meets her. But because we have these given circumstances now and we know exactly what he's capable of, we sort of have this feeling of like, okay, Belle... You know, to quote Whoopi Goldberg and Ghost, "You in danger, girl." Uh, he, he 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 might be. You know, he might be able to hunt people down. If you hurt him or wrong him, he might come after you at some point. Uh, so it would be interesting in a perfect world to be able to see that relationship kind of coalesce and see how it builds to the point of where Maurice kind of grabs her back and sells her off to Rumpelstiltskin. The thing is, is that I, I don't necessarily know. It, it, we, we talked um, last week about like, where's that white space? Where are those big, th- those big areas of, of flashback wall where there's plenty of room to paint versus, uh, you know, the things where you're kind of shoehorning stuff in. And I don't know if necessarily if there's like a lot of, of uh, space to paint in there because, you know, she does, disc- she's, when they kind of part ways, when he gets turned in the rows, they're still just engaged up at that point. They never really ended up actually getting married. So I don't know if there is a lot to paint in there. Um, the, the flashback I'm more interested in seeing is that journey into the molasses swamp to get the, uh, the mirror. Uh, you can, you, yeah. you kind of said how they, they kind of yada yada through that whole retrieval thing. I think that could be potentially an interesting quest where you meet a couple potentially interesting characters that have play a larger role. I think that that's something if, you know, Season six, season seven, season eight. If the writers wanted to find a way to introduce, uh, to introduce new characters or to establish characters that Bell somehow already knew, I think that's a ripe opportunity there is to go a little bit more in depth into what actually was involved in getting that mirror. I'm sure that there's a deleted scene where Bell just drew the double purple card and that's how she got into the swamp to grab the mirror <laughs> and then get out of it. Yeah. So let's jump to present day Underbrook here and let's really center on this gold bell and Gaston storyline continuing with what we were just speaking about. So we pick up from where gold and bell last left off. And as a reminder, essentially bell had discovered the deal that gold had made and the situation that they're kind of in with Hades. She was understandably furious and she kind of left him. Uh, but it seems like she's coming back. She's not willing to sever ties completely uh, because she is adamant that he can change his ways. And as Merlin once told her, they can basically use the dark for light. Now, Kurt, do you feel Bell was overly stubborn this episode in really pushing gold to the light side? Or do you think she was she was uh, justified in her actions here? The former. This this was the second thing that irked me about this episode was like kind of like the whole, you know, nobody will fight for a child like his father. And like the big record scratch moment for me was, but you can't use dark magic. And I was like, yeah, OK, I understand that uh, that Merlin had said that, you know, one day somebody would be able to wield the dark one dagger for good. But is, you know, show me that you can be that man. Like now's not really the time for that. You know, you've you've got like, let's. But, you know, baby steps here. Let, let's let's work up toward that. Let's not kind of you know use this really crucial pivotal moment in the lives of both of you and your unborn child um, to you know really kind of test the metal of 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 Rumpelstiltskin. Um, I don't know. You know, goal. It's it, and this is what at least as much as that whole thing irked me. Uh, her. Uh, stubbornness about this it really for me raised an interesting you know point and interesting question kind of throughout this episode in terms of it's really interesting that they talk about uh light magic and dark magic but they don't really talk about it in the context of good magic and evil magic and yeah they they talk about using it's it's it starts to paint a picture of 
uh, means versus ends. And, uh, you know, we get to a little bit more in terms of, you know, breaking into Gaston's locker and we'll talk about it then as well. But it's almost like you can use light magic and dark magic for good purposes or evil purposes. And I think there, and I think gold has a much more distinct, uh, definition of those four concepts of light magic, dark magic, good purpose, evil purpose, whereas bell kind of smushes them all together in a way that, uh, uh, makes it hard for her and gold to have the same conversation about it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a double-edged sword in that bell with her nose in a book is very, very intelligent, but she sort of has these almost dreamlike qualities about the way things are supposed to be. And I think I agree with you that gold's reasoning here, I think is actually pretty sound that he says like, you know, it's again, I talked, we talked about shades of gray a lot, um, maybe almost more than 50 times when we were talking about season four B in terms of, you know, being a villain or is it okay to use dark magic for good purposes? We even saw it a little bit with Emma as, as the dark one in this past first half of the season. So gold is very much of that mentality because this is the mentality he's lived ever since he became the dark one. When he was Mr. Gold in Storybrooke, he didn't outright help the heroes, but he would say like, Hey, here's some dark magic, use it for, you know, however you want to, how much, you know, how many spells have been used in the past that are probably some form of dark magic that our heroes have used in order to track somebody down or get information out of somebody. I I think there is an area where you can utilize this for a good purpose. And it's not necessarily like, I don't think all dark magic is murdering somebody or torturing somebody. Um, You know, gold alludes to the fact that even popping open a lock can be considered a form of dark magic here. Um, But I mean, I think this is a great representation of Bell's character because I, I do think that, there might have been a case I feel like uh, in the past few seasons where Belle almost to me came off as like a perfect character and that she like, she knew what was going on all the time. You know, she was, she, yes, she had her strife with Rumpelstiltskin sometimes, but she was a relatively happy person. She was out of the action. So she didn't have to deal with the emotional strife that was going on with the main story. Like she seemed like she was in a pretty good place. I feel like this episode, whether intentionally or not, the writers are kind of saying like, well, she's not exactly a perfect person. You know, she can she can preach all she wants, but at the end of the day, the things in practice might not necessarily match up with what she preaches. I do have to give uh, a kudos to the writers here in that I was totally expecting another few episodes after the end of last week of Rumpelstiltskin and Belle broken up on the outs only for them to come back together. At least we got that rushed along a little bit because it's happened God knows how many times over the course of the series so far. Yeah, it's it's it. They, they didn't stretch it out. And, and the whole thing about, you know, Emma, re, you know, uh, rescuing hook by the end of episode 17. I think that was us even kind of thinking that it would probably take longer, but everything t- we always think things take longer on the show than they, than they actually end up taking. So I think it might actually have actually land on time on that and get it happen around episode like 19 or 20. But I don't, it's this, this, this whole thing is interesting in terms of like, you know, bell doesn't want him to use darkness and dark magic to rescue, to help kind of, you know, defeat Hades. But she acknowledges that someone should be able at some point to wield the dark one dagger for good, which to me means using dark magic for good. So I, I it's, it's weird that she, she under, she believes that this, that there, it's possible to wield the dark one dagger for good purposes, but she doesn't want to use dark magic. And it's hard to kind of separate the two in my mind. So um, like, I'm not sure if she wants gold to start using light magic. Cause that's just not in him. It's like, look at the tools you have, look at the purpose, uh, ends justifying means ends not justifying means, but it, it kind of starts to, I think, run together in her head more than it is in, in golds. 
I want to talk about Gaston working at the pet shelter because you brought up before and Gaston will bring up later on in this episode that he feels like he's getting some sort of penance for what he's done. And you bring up the fact that as a hunter, probably the worst thing you could do is work in a pet shelter where you're as malicious as this is not allowed to kill the animals. But I feel like that policy doesn't really apply to like anybody else in Underbrook. Like it's not like Liam never wanted to work in a bar so that they decide or decide to put him behind there, you know, or like Cora never wanted to be the mayor. So I'm wondering like what, why is Gaston the special case here where Hades like is punishing him specifically? Yeah. And it's <laughs> maybe he just needed somebody to work like the, the Storyville, sorry, the Storybrook. um, uh, pet shelter and it just happened to be uh, you know kind of a, a nice little bit of revenge or just kind of oh you know after the fact now they think about it this kind of sucks for you sorry about that so let's just uh, paint this as a story of you're being punished maybe that's more more of what it is than, than anything but uh, yeah that's you, you need someone to run the pet shelter yeah I guess so for, it's for, just for, sort of- for all those animals that have unfinished business yeah all those all those dogs and you know we talked about the horses that were down there as well god knows what those dogs went through up on the surface that put them in this shelter yeah that's there's 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 some car they did not catch (laughs) exactly they're just waiting for that one car they're waiting for the car to the the car's battery to die so it comes to the underworld as well and it can it can finally move on from this yeah so Hades comes and he's here to make a deal. And it's a little similar to what he does with Liam, where, you know, Hades will show up to our character of the week and say, essentially, like, hey, just so you know, these people are down here. This is what you have to do. So Hades deal this week with Gaston is, hey, guess what? Your old girlfriend and your murderer are down <laughs> here. But hey, here are some like special arrows so you can take him out. Yeah. And. I, I, I'm still of the stance that Bell's actually his murderer. <laughs> exactly. They're one and the same, essentially. Yeah, I mean, G- G- Rumpelstiltskin just turned him to a flower. It was Bell who ended up uh, kind of cutting up the flower a little bit. And like, ouch, unfortunate. Um, but, you know, that's 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 my technical interpretation of the situation. Um, but yeah, we also learn here that, you know, you know, th- as as much as Hades kind of serves this up as an opportunity for revenge, at least uh, Gaston is, has the wherewithal to say, "Well, what's in it for you?" And we will we'll, we can talk about it a little bit more uh, when we when we talk about some of the kind of uh, secondary and tertiary storylines. But you know, earlier we'd seen that that uh, uh, Hades was walking through the town square, and he and in one of the cracks in the ground, he sees a flower, and this is like something that should not be happening in 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 the underworld and so that that this is kind of what what's in it for hades things are changing here these flowers are growing all over town it's kind of a you know typically this town is just full of decay this is a symbol that there's hope in town and there should not be hope souls souls that have hope end up moving on and so if we can punish these interlopers uh hope maybe perhaps that will kind of put a damper on the uh the hope that is is rising eternal now well, Bell is losing hope as they're kind of fruitlessly searching for a way to utilize the dagger, almost again in parallel to Bell and Gaston searching through the library for yeah. something to help the Ogre Wars. Uh, but they go out to the middle of the square where Gaston appears and drops the bomb that he believes that, at least you know from his logic, that Rumpelstiltskin killed him. Uh, Gold poofs him and Bell away, and this is, again, again, something that Gold had yet to reveal to Bell, and she is pissed. 
Uh, but gold is more concentrated on these arrows, which apparently were tainted with some sort of magic that is basically like a po- poison tip sword. And that if anything scratched him at all with those arrows, he'd be sucked into the river of lost souls, which, hey, makes a return appearance. Someone will join Mila for dinner, I guess. Okay, now I thought this was bad CGI. But when, when they cut to the harbor and the, and you see like the kind of the, let's put some green swirls in there. That to me, was was the was the poor CGI? Now, and I guess these arrows had been forged in the river somehow, um, and that that's kind of one one scratch, and then he's lost forever. So that's it's I don't know. It a, a lot was kind of revealed here. I think you know this is where Bell you know finds out that uh, at least it, it, this interpretation of the story <laughs> that Rumpelstiltskin killed her fiance because you know she never really know that before. But I was also a little bit surprised, and perhaps it makes more sense actually looking at how things wind up. Is you know. Uh, the the single the single mindedness that Gaston had on killing Rumpelstiltskin, and had he had like no interest or uh, in seeing in, in seeing Bell. Um, again, we know how uh, the flashback ends, and we know how this episode ends, and so it's perhaps not so surprising. Uh, but at least at this point, if you're kind of watching things concurrently um, and and the, the the normal flow of things. Uh, you know, we just got done seeing a Gaston that seemed kind of smitten with Belle and was like uh, really into her. And here he's seeing her for the first time in quite a while and completely has blinders on that she's even there and just so single-mindedly focused on taking out Mr. Gold. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of like single-mindedness, Gold is basically kind of asking Belle permission to use dark magic to, to, to take out Gaston. But Belle, again, is very set on saving his soul uh, since that kind of hurts Hades as well. And she gives this very poignant quote of like, you can't just attack someone without knowing their full story. And it, it applies here to saying like, you know, he's a lot more of a person than you think he is. But when you think about the way she actually knows Gaston, the inverse is actually true that, you know, you don't really know someone and they could be a much worse person than you actually think at first. Yeah. And, and it, it's really kind of interesting. And the, like, I, I saw a parallel, some parallels between the flashback episode and the underworld episode or the flashback storyline and the under underworld storyline. Um, uh, more so I think toward the end where Gaston's going after the, the ogre. Um, and we eventually see Rumpelstiltskin going after Gaston. Um, but yeah, you, you kind of your point about, you know, Gaston and Bell looking through the library and finding that, uh, index of magical antiquities uh, very similar to them trying to go through all these books in the pawn shop. Um, and again, it's true is that we don't know the full, st- we ourselves also don't know the full story of uh, what Gaston's all about. And I think this is this, and this is a thing again, going back to the first thing that irked me uh, was that we know that Bell knows Gaston's whole story uh, in terms of at least more than we do in terms of how he had pursued the ogre and how he has evil in his soul. So it's interesting that she uses that line as a way to try to get uh, Rumpelstiltskin uh, to pump the brakes because she knows more of of the story than she has told uh, Mr. Gold. And that story doesn't really end well for Gaston and he is kind of a prick. Um, And these are all things she knows. So I, I, that's why it it confuses me a little uh, upon reflection that she's using the whole, you don't know his whole story. So we can't take action now because she knows it uh, and it's not good. (laughs) Well, maybe it's connected to what happens next, which is she goes back to the shelter and she finds uh, you know, the book that she talks about with Gaston in his locker. And she comes up with this theory that that must mean that 
I'm his unfinished business. So maybe if she had those feelings before, maybe they're softened a little bit and she feels kind of guilty for judging him because she realizes like, oh, in spite of him being kind of a prick, he did love me that whole time. Though she'll find out in a little bit that that's not true whatsoever. Or maybe his unfinished business is that he's only read the entire thing once yeah, exactly I, <laughs> and, I never got i didn't know how it ended i never got to the end <laughs> her her handsome handsome hero hero <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what the last word is uh, uh so hades comes to make yet another deal i do like the little added detail here i haven't seen lucifer which stars the previous robin hood apparently uh but i do like this little idea that dogs bark every time and animals react every time you know lucifer or hades is in the room but here's here he's here to make a deal with bell he's basically gonna say like listen gaston and gold are at each other's throats literally we'll see in one of the next couple scenes i'll make you a deal if one of them throws the other one into the river of lost souls uh, i'll consider my contract with mr gold null and void and you get to keep your baby which i don't know what this is kurt with emily deravin and people wanting her <laughs> damn baby it seems like she is typecast nowadays she can just can't she just like find a squirrel baby somewhere <laughs> exactly now we're gonna see like season uh season six just like season six of lost uh bell is going to go crazy and wind up you know living in the jungle with her all these twigs in her hair we can hope we can hope <laughs> full tarzan <laughs> One can only hope. Now, again, we're talking about, you know, taking everything Hades says with a grain of salt here. Kurt, did you actually believe that when Hades made this deal that he had full intentions of keeping it? Or did he know, like, okay, there's probably going to be a loophole in here somewhere? Because I do think there was a portion of him that's like, I'm going to rely on the fact that Belle is very much about getting herself involved in the action to protect the people that she loves. There's a chance that she could throw him in as well. And then I can still get to keep the contract and get rid of somebody too. Um, I thought that he had full intention of keeping it, uh, keeping his word. Um, as much as I do get wrong about this show, um, I did get right to the fact that like, and again, fast forwarding and how things end. I'm like, well, Mr. Gold didn't throw him in the river. She did. So this isn't going to work. Yeah. So I did see that coming. I also, it's just also the slight technicality that she never agreed to the deal. Like, and so, and so I think like, even if, if Rumpelstiltskin, I'm sorry, listeners, I keep bouncing back between Rumpelstiltskin and Mr. Gold, um, in terms of the name. Uh, but if uh, Rumpelstiltskin had thrown Gaston into the, uh, into the harbor, I think that he would have also been in, uh, Hades would have been in full rights to say, you know what? Yeah. But you said no to the deal. You never actually accepted the deal. So, <laughs> yeah. um, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, either way, she's screwed. Yeah, yeah. you said like, well, you didn't actually sign the deal and there was no consent given. So I rule in the favor of me in this trial. Yeah, not, Which again, not it, even signing it. She said no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when when you make the rules, I guess you you have the ability to be able to manipulate the outcome however you'd like here. Uh, but we'll see, you know, that come to fruition in a couple of scenes from now. Gaston thinks he's tracked gold in the pawn shop though it turns out it's a very well-dressed dummy i have no idea where bell made that uh unless she's doing some other stuff that i don't want to even think about uh while she's missing rumple but she basically says like okay me watching this reveals what i thought about you which is that you are bloodthirsty and want to kill him but then he reveals that listen dingus the reason why i have this book isn't a reminder of you it's a reminder of like how you screwed with me and how basically you led to these ogre wars kind of starting again i don't think that logic is true uh but because you like made me go with this give peace a chance movement all this stuff happened 
I'm just loving that you said dingus. <laughs> There's a dingus Mary kill. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and my favorite part was like, you know, you made me weak. And he like goes in for this big dramatic table sweep of like, get it. And he like knocks three pieces of paper on the floor. <laughs> and most of the stuff is still like left there. Um, and I, I don't know. Maybe he thought that they had messed up the scene is like, Oh, I'm not going to make the, you know, the, 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 the scene directors have to like, you know, set everything back up on the table again. But, um, but I did, but I did think it was an interesting twist. And this is why I think this does explain, um, I think, uh, why you don't really see this like look of recognition in Gaston's eyes when he first fires arrows at, at Mr. Gold upon him emerging from the pawn shop. He doesn't, he doesn't, um, appear to be, uh, you know, happy at all to see bell, um, which is something that you would have expected. It, it it's, it's I think that's this kind of spells that I liked the the slight twist here, um, despite the fact that maybe Bell has now taken up ventriloquism. That's just creepy. Yeah, I I mean, I don't even want to imagine maybe that magical dummy is enchanted with something and it'll turn out to be a plot prominence later on. So Bell decides, you know, she's freaking out a little bit about what just happened. She decides to go to gold and decides, hey, we're going to we're not going to have any more secrets in our relationship. Let me tell you what just happened. But hey promise me you're not going to you you know you're not going to hurt Gaston uh but Cole basically says like oh great thanks for telling me by the way no deal and disappears which bell what 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 were you expecting to happen honestly the man was just talking to you again and again about how he's not going to try to use his dark magic to turn into light magic you're going to try to reveal all this information to him basically give him a reason to go after Gaston and he's just not going to take the bait no, this is Mr. Gold we're talking about. The guy who absorbed all the Dark One's powers into him just to have that insurmountable power. But Mr. Gold is also like the master of all deals. And Bell explicitly tells him that she said no to Hades' deal. And so he should know right off the bat that even if he kills Gaston, that's not going to get the baby back. Uh, he wants his baby back. Um, <laughs> but so it, Rumble's baby <laughs> back ribs. Oh, God. Um, I mean, yes, he just, I mean, truth be told, uh, Rebel Silkin just wants to kill Gaston. Uh, so yeah. but I just, there, I, I don't think that, that he truly uh, believes that doing so will, you know, cause Hades to give the, to give the baby back. <laughs> now I can't unhear. Oh, now you can't get it out of your head, right? Yeah. This, this podcast is sponsored by Chili's. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I I would I could definitely see that. I think at this point, like Gold is just given a reason to be like, eh, you know what? I know you said no to the deal, but hey, this gives me you know a reason to go after Gaston, and he does. And I don't know how long they were going at it, but Bell makes it down to the docks just in time to see Gold force choking yep. Gaston. <laughs> a match game, ding 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 ding. Match game, perfect. <laughs> I was actually thinking like, I hope Kurt has a match game for this because force choke <laughs> did seem a little obvious here uh but bell actually pulls one over on gold in that you know she embraces him at first and you think like okay they're back together great let's see what happens but she pulls out the dagger and essentially commands him to let gaston go bad judgment call as gaston pulls an arrow on gold and is about to kill him when bell once again gets between them but accidentally knocks gaston into the river of lost souls and uh, so long, GG Gaston. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, I, I, I thought I figured something was going to happen because, well, well, I didn't necessarily think 
like come out of it going, oh, she's going to pull away and she's going to have like taken the dagger from him. That was kind of like that that hug, that that closeness that she had with with Rumpelstiltskin was was the kind of closeness that you would get. Like if this is Game of Thrones, someone's getting yep, someone's, someone's getting, getting stabbed, stabbed in the back. Someone's getting Absolutely, the the back, the front, the thigh, the side, everywhere. <laughs> um, uh, but. So I, I figured something was up. I didn't think she was going to stab him and she didn't, but she, she does end up um, taking the dagger um, briefly. <laughs> now I, I want to kind of compare this moment to in season four B when Emma tries to protect Henry and essentially blast Cruella off the cliff. Now, if we're taking these cases to trial, are they both convicted of manslaughter here? And in actuality, Kurt, how much blood is on Belle's hands here? Well, he drowned, so there was no blood. <laughs> Figuratively, Kurt. <laughs> well, and he's already dead. Um, <laughs> um, uh, you know, this isn't going to trial. So no, let's not worry about that. It's it's they're they're settling out of court. They're settling out of court. Like who really? I don't think anyone's in the in Gaston's corner here. Um, it's I I think that she should be thrown in jail for giving the dagger back to Rumpelstiltskin. Mm-hmm. Instead of instead of yeah, I'm just intrigued by like I think her and Emma are both kind of comparable here in that I think because they were so blinded by this idea of protection they end up unintentionally taking someone out here and you know i think we made the argument when emma had killed cruella that like in the opinion of the queens of darkness and isaac that was the incident that was supposed to set emma on the path to becoming pure evil and the anti-savior whereas here i'm wondering how much this is going to have an effect on bell because again yes this she did kind of kill someone or at least sent doom someone to the river of lost souls but that being said she did know he was kind of a jerk so it's yeah. not like she was she was going after an innocent person she was going yeah. after someone that she had a history with that she knew was capable of doing something and that could kind of be in the argument of self-defense as well i mean he was about to kill mr gold and so she decided to protect him because of that yeah, I mean, but again, lots of parallels between uh, her interceding, um, at least in in terms uh, in terms of her. Sorry, lots of parallels between her interceding in Gaston's killing of the ogre and her interceding in uh, Gold's killing of Gaston. Except, mm-hmm. you know, for it to be a true parallel, she would have had like have to have like accidentally knocked the ogre onto like a huge pile of swords that was hidden in a thicket later somewhere yeah. in the forest. Um but but yeah, that's true. It's like she knew that this was a guy who had evil in his soul. Um I mean, it's you look at the Gaston from the the movie and he's just like, you know, huge douche definitely villain don't know if i would say he was evil um but you know the mirror doesn't lie apparently but yeah she 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 does this knowing his true potential for evil and and plus the fact like you said he she, it was a little bit of not self defense but the defense of another um so yeah gaston's out of the picture that's that's now do you think though that Bell was preaching this entire episode about how, you know, good intentions are only paved with good magic or good behaviors. Bell, in a way, kind of used a bad behavior to make something good. Her husband survived, his life was spared, but in exchange, she accidentally sent someone into this purgatorial state. 
Do you think this will have an effect on Bell's character psychologically, or do you think <laughs> they'll recover and they'll just focus on like, okay, no, we're just going to go after Hades. We have more reason now to go after him. Um, well, I think her state before was one that was just too black and white. That's saying that there's, there's shades of gray. I mean, we kind of like glossed over a little the the whole, uh, we've mentioned it briefly, but the whole, um, you know, she wanted uh, gold to use his magic to break into Gaston's locker. Uh, and he says, well, isn't that a, isn't that a, you're using it to steal from uh, a man who does not want stuff stolen from him. So technically if you, I do that, I'd be doing it for evil. So, well, it's not the same. I was like, well, no, again, it's, it's the ends versus do the ends justify the means. And you can't really uh, say that um, if that all dark magic any, anything done with dark magic ends up being evil. Is it really, you really do have to look at the, at the means. I think gold has the clearer view of things there. And if bell had this more, you know, black and white binary view, hopefully, you know, she'll see coming out of this, that if she is psychologically changed at all, that it isn't necessarily so clear that there's this, you know, that's like 95% gray and only two and a half percent black and two and a half percent white. Um, have some quick math there. Um, I am the tabulator. You're the tabulator for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so she may, she may change coming out of this, but at the same time, hopefully I'm hopefully, I don't think it necessarily will um, uh, steal her nerves and make her more results to defeat Hades. If anything, I'm hoping it sees that she should at least give gold the chance to use the magic that he has mastered for a good purpose. Uh, it, it's just kind of making sure what you need to pump the brakes on for gold is the unnecessary viciousness uh, and nefariousness. It's like, it's just, you know, just that's, that's the, those are the guardrails she needs to keep her eyes on. Not, you know, look at the guardrails, not the car. Let's talk about this last scene and finish up this gold bell and, and uh, formerly Gaston storyline here with this last scene with Hades, where he comes in, as we talked about before, he said like, well, you technically Gaston fell into the river, but it was Bell who did it. So, you know, you got beat yeah. by a bunch of rules, a la Survivor Thailand, and I still get to keep your baby. And Bell essentially asks him, like, <laughs> why were you goading me into this? <laughs> I'm just picturing Hades like, did you say merch? I didn't say merch. Did you hear me say merch? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> exactly. Yes, they, uh, Bell is definitely the she-ann of this episode. In terms of she, she ran her mouth way too much. Um, yeah, like I said, it's the whole i don't know this this was i don't know how i take this and and how much i buy it but the whole uh this is why i did it i had my reasons that he sees the 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 shriveling flower now uh you know in in a crack um apparently hopelessness reigns supreme but it does seem to be kind of a uh he may have won this battle, but he still seems to be really losing the war in terms of what uh, Team Charming is managing to do in the underworld. Yeah, he's very concentrated. They're, these people are plentiful. They can <laughs> spread out, but Hades can poof basically anywhere he wants, and he seems to have all this power to take care of things. But he was very, very centric on these two people for the entirety of the episode. Though I do think he is sort of um, he's sort of pushing out a message here where he's saying, you know, the past few episodes, we've seen the heroes come in and save souls. But I think Hades, in doing this, is sort of reminding them, like, hey, guys, you have the power, yes, to send people up to Mount Olympus, but you also have the, the power to send people the other way as well. And to sort of make them kind of stop in their tracks a little bit to realize like, hey, maybe we shouldn't be pushing on Hades' work because there's a chance we could actually ruin these people's lives as a result. Well, I mean, and to be fair, it's 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 interesting that 
um, supposedly the clock ticks, uh, you know, f- forward a little bit. And now, and now potentially, you know, the clock ticks forward whenever a soul moves on. A soul moving, this is kind of a limbo. This is like a, a waiting room for you to go one way or the other. And a soul moving on doesn't necessarily mean that it has to go on to what its perceived uh, uh, paradise is. It, it could go on to its perceived, you know, you know hell. Um, he, you know, he, Hades has even said repeatedly that this is, it's, this isn't hell, but it's like, you know, right before it. Um, so that makes me wonder, it's like, we've seen that the Hades just doesn't really want souls to move on. Um, so it's, this was definitely a bad thing. This was, this was a soul that was, I think forever banished to a, a limbo of sorts uh, in, in Gaston. But uh, it seems that like, you know, even a soul that has, you know, uh, finished its unfinished business uh, that goes on to hell is probably a strike against what Hades wants here. Um, it's not so much that he doesn't want people to move on to paradise. He doesn't want people moving on at all. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, this, at least the whole Gaston getting knocked in the river, uh, meeting up with Mila and uh, uh, just really not ever being able to move on. I think that is a win in, in, Hades, in Hades column, but it's like, you know, you captured, you know, one Bishop, when all you've got left are several pawns. Uh, so, and, and they have the rest of their pieces on the chessboard still. So it's, again, it's, it just feels like he might have won a really small minor battle, but um, I, I don't really see that this was a huge strike against what our heroes have been doing in the underworld. I want to see the uh, the web only episodes of Mila and Gaston hanging out in the River of Lost Souls because if they get to, if they get together, that's yet another connection that binds all these characters together. Is that Rumple's ex wife gets with Belle's ex fiance? But if it's if the river is as bleak and their future is as bleak as I think we're meant to be, it's just them kind of like sitting in a waiting room, not really talking to each other ever for eternity. <laughs> yes, exactly. Reading magazines, watching Doctor Phil. So I would say, I mean, obviously there was a lot to dissect with all that bell and golden gaston stuff and i agree that there might have been some questionable choices on bell's character i really enjoyed it i cannot say the same thing however for what happens with the rest of these characters in this episode i tell me if you heard this one before kurt emma feels guilty that she didn't do something alone and that her family is at risk but her family convinces her hey we're all in this together it's a completely new concept right uh yeah and and especially if within that concept, she learns a piece of information at the very beginning that she should just for no, uh, uh, has no hesitancy, just kind of keeping to herself instead of just fully divulging everything she knows to everybody right at the upfront. So we talked before <laughs> about how Henry kind of possesses the uh, powers of heroes, Isaac Mendez. It seems like this episode, Emma, Emma is uh, channeling Angela Petrelli and that she has these prophetic dreams now i tried to look this up kurt do we know of any other instances where people we we know of the dream nebulous state in season two where people go after they've been placed under a sleeping curse but i can't think otherwise of people who had like dreams about events that happened exactly as they did um we have in terms of like a a forethought um there's a little bit with um the witch being able to kind of see things that the blind witch uh, a a little bit but in terms of like dreams and 
Uh, not so much. Again, there may be some like one-off instances. It's not been a recurring thing where this has been somebody's shtick. Um, I'm sure you know, you know, listeners, you know, let us know on the comments page of uh, Posha Recaps, you know, if there are you know more in-depth versions of this. So there, yeah, but the that dream state that people were put in from the sleeping curse with the, the burning house and trying to communicate across realms—that's the main one that comes to mind for me as well. So then the big question is, I think the one interesting thing to get out of this, aside from the surprise appearance of Ruby at the very end, is the fact that this might be another thing that's added on to Emma's magical repertoire here. Because again, I don't think we've really seen a character that has precognition through her dreams. Now, what do you think the chances are that this is an actual magical thing? Or what are the chances that you think it might be like a side effect of the, of the underworld or it just happens to be convenient for the plot of this episode? You know what? That's something I hadn't asked myself, and um, uh, or even even thought about. That's that's a really good question. Um, what is causing this? I, I my initial re- my initial thinking, my just my initial reaction to the question is that it's not necessarily like she's like leveled up and now she has a new uh, light magic power where she can see the future. I uh, it I feel like it may be the result of um of whatever I wonder, I wonder if it's linked to Ruby at all and whatever it kind of happened with them. Um, I don't necessarily know for sure. I'm tempted to say it's maybe just a a side effect or the one-off thing that just kind of happened, a magical, uh, you know, burst uh, in the underworld that happened to strike her and kind of gave her this one-time shot. I, I, I'm not really sure that's a great question. Yeah. And it also, maybe it connects to the very first thing we see from this half season is Neil reaching out to Emma through a dream. So maybe there's this, there's this weird thing where almost like Freddy Krueger, uh, like she can see the future and she can communicate with people magically, but only through her dreams. Yeah. I was about to start, uh, break out in a song there. Uh, uh, but never mind. Um, oh, well, which which Britney Spears song? No, no, Lucky? It, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't Britney Spears. <laughs> no, a dream is a wish your heart wake makes. I, I'm assuming that's what you were about to say, no, right? No, it was like only my dreams. Isn't that uh, Debbie Gibson? Oh, I don't know. I only know her uh, her Crystal Light theme song. Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway. it's quite the hook. Speaking of hook, uh, yes. so Emma, so Emma's dream I should actually outline. So it's her hook and Snow White standing in front of those three gravestones, trying to figure out how can we magically destroy them. Emma's about to do so when this big magical big storm rolls in and a black creature basically comes in what she assumes kills her mother. Uh, and she yeah. wakes up and it turns out that they're on the roof of the library. I guess they were keeping guard while Regina is using some magical runes or, you know, as hook puts it squiggly lines to try to break their way into Hades lair. Yeah. And in my notes, I even had this initial thing that it looked like I had it described as a wolf like creature. And part of me was actually thinking, where is Ruby? Um, so, uh, I, I maybe they could have obscured it better. Um, interesting, also first person point of view uh, from the creature. It was very, it was very kind of Evil Dead Army of Darkness in terms of the power, uh, kind of zooming around the gravestones. Um, but yeah, it's but you kind of mentioned seemingly you know kills her mom. Um, and at least that's how Emma kind of thinks about it for the rest of this episode. Is I didn't necessarily get that. Like death definitely knocked her down. But I didn't necessarily, I didn't immediately go to and Snow White's dead. Um, yeah, exactly. And and her mom's also, I mean, now that she's taken on that Snow White moniker, you would think she's more on the offensive and would, would at least try to bring that creature down a little bit. Yeah. And 
so they so they see the flashing light from the library, which kind of means okay, you can come down from you know your 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 lookout from your stakeout. Uh, we're we're all ready, and she comes in, and Mary Margaret notices that Emma seems shaken by something, and says, "Everything okay?" And I'm like, I, I literally paused it, and I was like, "Okay, tell her, tell her everything." There's no reason not to tell her everything that you just saw, how real it was. You obviously remember it. Just tell her. You're gonna tell her, and then I unpause it doesn't tell her i mean well it's she, she, she mentions part of it but exactly which is it's, even it's, it's worse almost, which is even worse yeah, yeah it's the it's 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 the opposite of tell her essentially that she does tell her but she tells her the non-pertinent the non-lethal part of the dream of like hey uh i have this crazy idea uh why don't we just go and try to burn the names off the gravestone with magic because it turns out that even with these squiggly lines they, they can't get into hades lair uh, and so Hook's like, okay, I'll go with you. Emma says, okay, that's fine. But then Snow raises her hand and she's like, no, absolutely <laughs> not. And e- this is when Emma sort of realizes like, okay, maybe, maybe I should say, maybe I should say, why not now? No, no, you can come with. That, I'm sure it'll be fine. That that just bugged me. And, I, and I'm sorry that that I feel that I'm coming off as so negative on this list. That just really bugged me to no end. And it's like, um, yeah, it's it's you choose to tell them about the the dream you have because it comes out that like, she says maybe we should just burn the names off the stones and Regina says such a spell doesn't exist and 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 Emma says well yeah it does it kind of came to me in my dream okay you revealed that much reveal the whole thing now like there's no reason not to there's absolutely no reason not to especially if you're scared about your mom joining you for a particular reason um, but now that I think about it Mike this does kind of potentially paint a picture of like. It, it seems like she learned a spell that would allow her to do this through the dream. So maybe mm. it isn't because she says, because when you're Regina saying there isn't a, a spell that does this and Emma says, yes, it does. It came to me in my dream. So we're to believe in, and see that, that she has kind of learned how to do this. You learned a new use for her magic uh, via this dream. So maybe it is, maybe it is kind of an, an offshoot of her light magic power is that she'll, uh, at times learn new uses for it. And this is maybe one of the ways in which she will learn new uses for her magic. That's super interesting. I didn't even think about that. Uh, that would, that would be super interesting because now I'm trying to think about like the various times she's used magic. And I mean, the, her big number one thing is the big flashes of light, but yeah, the way the, the magic that she used for like the burning of the gravestone is like some sort of like almost ripply clear effect and i don't remember if we've ever seen that type of thing before so you could you could be very correct here maybe she only learned it through the dream and that's how she got the idea and was able to do it i mean we'll never find out if that actually could work because surprise surprise as soon as they go to the gravestones and do almost the exact same shots the same storm comes in and emma like dorothy takes off into the storm cellar and in this case the crypt as the storm cellar of underbrook although i did also take note at this point that it as as much as hook just described it as oh there's a big storm coming it was very definitely a cyclone and you can't see yep. and you don't see cyclones like that without thinking of zelina and oz and at this point i was thinking to myself so wait is is this happening concurrently to uh, Zelina coming to town. It's like, no, no, Zelina's already in town. In fact, Regina just said she has to go talk to her sister. So, I mean, this is, this is not, I, I was having a hard time linking this to Zelina unless, unless Zelina was somehow summoning this. And plus it wasn't a green cyclone. Um, and you know, it was a cyclone 
in the underworld. What does that potentially mean? Uh, so, but I, I, I was definitely having Cyclone, Oz, Zelina, uh, little spurts in my mind uh, when I saw that storm. It's interesting. I want to talk to you a little bit about Ruby at the end because it was a little spoiled. It wasn't an outright like, oh, Ruby and Mulan will appear later on in this season. But there was some word, I think, with interviews with the creators and the producers about how like, oh, we, this, is the, this is the last we will see of Ruby and Mulan. And in fact, the next episode when the title came out, it was obviously very much alludes to her. So I want to find out later on your thoughts about her return. But let's go to that Reg- Regina and Zelina scene. You just spoke a bunch about her. I mean, and not too much plot-wise out of this, but a nice little character moment between the two. It seems like the two of them are able to sit down and actually have a civil conversation after they kind of came to terms last episode and Zelina kind of... It's really nice to see Zelina's emotional beats carry over from the previous episode as well because, again, I think it was such a stellar episode for her character that I would like... It, it, it would be nice to do that instead of pulling a Mr. Gold and have her disappear entirely for the episode, even if she sits in the, in the diner the entire time. I, I think there is some pertinence here in that Zelina thinks that she's Hades' only weakness, which makes me think that she is not his only weakness. Well, see, I interpreted this more as, because I think she kind of said it as a throw-off line, like, you know, you're you know, you're barking up the wrong tree. So, you know, that he really doesn't have a weakness. If anything, I'm his only weakness. And I think like she, and I don't think she's thinking of herself as what can help defeat Hades. But if anything, this might've like planted the seed and raised, you know, Regina's eyebrow in terms of, Oh, so somehow I have to, we have to use Zelina to defeat Hades. So I actually thought that, um, she might be his only weakness and that the then uh, team charming has to kind of figure out, okay, it actually is Lena. How can we use her to, uh, to get at Hades? So I was actually coming out of it. It got a little something different out of it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I could, I could see that, that that would also be, you know, let's remember that Emma as the dark one tried to use Zelina uh, for nefarious purposes right. to basically die by channeling all the dark one energy. So this would be the second yeah. time in a row that they're trying. They're basically Zelina is the goat tied to the stake in Jurassic Park waiting for the <laughs> T-Rex that is Hades to devour her. Yeah. And it's, and that's why the is. I, th- I think it from a story structure, I think it works if she kind of just says it offhandedly and doesn't realize what she's saying, that she doesn't realize that she holds the key that yes, no, you know, you are the weakness for Hades and, and, and you're going to be the key to, you know, defeating him. If she doesn't fully realize that and she kind of just said it like maybe, you know, metaphorically, um, then I think that's something that potentially we're going to be revisiting down the road. And another interesting thing that happens in this scene as well is that I think at the end of the last episode, I would say that Zelina is was very adamant about leaving Hades behind, but things were very complicated between the two. And that really comes to the surface here in this episode where Regina asks him, asks her outright, do you still love him? And her silence is basically all the answer that she needs. It's very clear. And we'll see the last little thing that she has in the show is that she gets a covered platter a la a survivor auction, but there's no, yeah. you know, uh, there's no frog eyes underneath that plate. It's just a single decaying flower. And it's clear with the little smirk that she gives that there's a chance she could join his side by the end of it. And then if, again, if this is his only weakness and he takes advantage of his weakness, if he has possession of one of his horcruxes, that makes the game a lot more difficult. Or say, or the opposite. If it humanizes him, him some, I mean, we said that, yeah, true love's kiss will, you know, potentially give him his powers back. But you know, if, if true love's kiss, um, 
basically brings life to the underworld if it frees Hades and you know does that potentially in turn free everybody else like I don't know if a Hades released from the underworld because we kind of uh in the Hercules episode got the idea that this seems to be his prison um or not not that Hercules sorry not the Hercules episode um uh, but the, the recent episode um with Selena in Oz if uh if this is indeed his prison uh perhaps releasing him uh he'll be released as kind of a quote unquote, like, you know, good kind person. I, I, I don't really know. It's potentially like if, if this is getting Zelina closer to Hades, yes, on the one hand, he could potentially be a turning his biggest weakness into his biggest strength. On the other hand, he could potentially be um, setting himself up to put love in front of power in the underworld. So it's the, the, the thing that confused me about, the most though about the the scene like what he eventually wants you know is you know we we had all this concern that uh previously that he was just after Zelina's baby and we do see that Zelina asked Regina you know how is she doing and you know, it's like and I didn't necessarily know if this was a wise move or Regina's part like oh she's she's hidden in the woods with Robin Hood she says that Hades will never find them how is that possible it seems yeah. I, I, I I'm I'm not sure of a situation in which Robin Hood will be able to take anything and hide it from Hades in his own realm. Yeah, I, I agree. He's I don't think there's any like limit to his power in this realm, specifically because he created it. He's the one that, you know, built this Sim house. He sees every room in it. It's not like the Sims go to their own little secret corner where the people can't see it and yeah. do things. He's big brother. He can see every corner. Yeah. He and the microphones everywhere and they can see through every camera. You can't do anything that he can't see. Regina, put on your microphone. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we've talked about how he doesn't necessarily have control over uh, the the individual. Like, uh, you know, all of the living people here are like Shima and have the freedom to throw their microphone into the hot tub. <laughs> um, but so he doesn't have control over the quote unquote living individuals. Um, but it does seem that at least he's like omnipresent and uh, and can can see everything. So let's go down to the crypt. First off, Kurt, anything you noticed from the Underbrook crypt that differentiates it from our Storybrook equivalent? Did you did you notice anything off the bat? You know, I think at this point I was furiously taking notes, and I I, I kind of wish I'd gone, I had paused it to see were there any little Easter eggs here akin to kind of the the Thor's hammer uh, that I had referenced before. Mm-hmm. Um, at first glance, uh, it didn't really seem like there was anything that really differentiated it. Did you see anything? I didn't. So again, listeners. We have our trust in you if you, if you found anything. Uh, but I do want to talk about this. I'm going to, for lack of a better term, like a motivational speech where Emma's Emma, Hook, and Snow are down in the crypt and Emma finally fesses up as to what she saw. Regina comes down sometime later after her conversation with Zelina and Emma comes right out and says that she basically feels guilty that and she feels that she's failed everyone because they still couldn't get out of the underworld. She rightly, in my opinion, points out the logic that not everyone should have gone down there. Uh, but Snow and Regina, at least, are very adamant about the fact that, like, hey, it's worth it for us to be down here and we're going to face this monster together. Cat Smith asked us, Kurt, did she, well, she personally didn't buy Snow's reasoning for Emma's dream and for a reason for them to all be down in, in Underbrook together. What did you think about this speech overall? And and did you enjoy it? Um, eh, I, I, 
I don't necessarily think feel like I have the need for like motivational speeches uh, coming out of like the 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 C plot of of the episode. Um, I mean, it gives them, I guess, a reason to to, to be there. Uh, but uh, it was like. I don't I know. I, I was just still too irked by, you know, Emma putting off so long, just being completely upfront about the dream to everybody back in the library. Uh, so, so I didn't, I didn't really take much away from the motivational speech. I mean, for me, as I talked about before, and again, I'll, I'll give the preface that Kurt gave a while ago after the fact and say like, I apologize if it sounds like we're really harshing on this storyline, but to me, it sounds like we're repeating the same beats over and over again. I mean, Emma had this reaction four or five episodes ago when they first went down to the underworld and she said, oh, you guys shouldn't have gone down here with me. Oh, I feel so bad. And everyone said, no, Emma, it's okay. And I thought and hoped that like a post-Dark One Emma would not be as moody and mopey as the Emma of like seasons two through four had become. Though that clearly is not the case. And look, I know you have a lot weighing on you and that's so Emma has come into the picture now where apparently she can see into the future. But still, I feel like Nothing new happened outside of this apparently new convention of dreams and what we're about to see come into the picture. Yeah, I think, I mean, honestly, I think the the only two th- things that moved the story forward, um, never mind what moved the story backward uh, in, the, in this whole uh, Emma and the cemetery, and Emma and the dream subplot is, one, uh, she potentially uh, learns new magic that could potentially help them release although it could just very well be that the whole uh you know blasting the names off of the gravestones is not going to go in even anywhere further although i think it's still something they need to revisit um but yeah it seems like the only thing that this even potentially leads up to is the the uh you know the dark shadowy figure uh that that, that came with the storm and let's talk about that figure they decide to we're all in this together. Uh, can't wait until the high school musical one in season 7A. This can be a really good storyline. Uh, they track down the creature. They nail it down. But suddenly Snow spies a unconscious wolf and a red cloak. And it is the appearance of Ruby. Now, Kurt, you had said you had seen little hints of it here and there. But I assume you hadn't read the publicity coming up to it that Ruby would make a return appearance. Were you genuinely shocked to see her and specifically seeing her down here in the underworld? Um. I'll take that answer, that question in two parts. Uh, one, you are correct. I did not know that Ruby was going to be making a return to the series. So again, it's it's one again one of the, one of the the fun things I enjoy about not knowing the promotional stuff. Uh, I but again, I I said earlier that I I wasn't completely surprised because I did think in the dream when the shadowy creature knocked down Snow White, it looked vaguely wolf like. So I already had in my head this Ruby. Uh, creature in or a ruby connection in my mind and we even then seeing snow uh what was that i was i was thinking the muppets are now owned by abc right uh, that's the that's the ruby connection yes someday we'll find it um and also then seeing the very obviously a wolf print that snow white is tracking part of me the the ruby question came up again in my in my head so i wasn't completely surprised but i was i would say uh, I was, but I was pleased to see that this was like a, another tie-in. So I, um, not a hundred percent surprised, maybe a bit to see that that's where they did end up going with it. Um, but it was something that I was happy to see. 
So let's not speculate too, too much about next week, but I'm intrigued from your perspective just right now. Is seeing her a game changer from a, a wide variety of perspectives? I mean, in my opinion, since we already have Bell and Zelina down there, not really, since we know there are other ways to get down there. And specifically, if she's coming from a place like Oz, there could very easily be a way for her to get there somewhere through Cyclone, apparently. But it, I, I feel like, you know, there could be a chance that she becomes a rather major character for these last four or five episodes. That's that's now, do I see it as a game changer? It's I, I, I think I tend to agree with you that it has to be a, have a major influence on the plot because it's it's getting, you know, pretty late in the season for us to just have a um, a you know, a Meg or a Hercules introduced for one or two episodes. So I don't think this is something that's necessarily going to be, uh, uh, simply introduced and then resolved. And then, you know, it could be completely wrong. Episode 18, uh, we don't see Ruby anymore at the, after the end of it, but, but potentially it opens up some whole door. So I don't think it's going to necessarily be a subplot, but it's going to potentially open up some door that allows them to eventually defeat Hades. Uh, I know that, um, that Kat Smith had also asked, wait, why, when did Ruby die? What's she doing in Underbrook? Um, my interpretation right off the bat was that it was that she came on, on the cyclone. And so I was having, uh, just watching this episode, like what is Ruby? Not so much. How did Ruby die? But what is Ruby's connection to Oz? And is there any, and again, not going too far into the previews, it looks like there, there is going to be some sort of connection that is explored. Um, so it's, it, it's, it's a strange introduction. Um, I, I just can't see them hopefully introducing a, a completely, uh, irrelevant subplot uh, this late in the season. I need something that helps progress the main, uh, you know, fight against Hades story forward. Well, you would think that, but then we had that bear King episode, remember? And that was like episode nine of an 11 episode season. How dare you bring up the bear King? Well, this, this actually, if we see if we see Mulan and Ruby next week, it brings yet more relevance to the bear King, considering that we had the ale of Dunbrock at the beginning of this half season. So it's getting more and more legitimate as the time passes. I have one more question before we jump into a, an exciting new segment of the podcast, but Rachel wants us to kind of look at the past six episodes thus far. We're six episodes in of, of 11. It actually might be 12. I'm not entirely sure. I think there might be a two hour block with like two episodes airing together that they do sometimes but we were officially halfway through season 5b rachel feels disappointed kurt are you on her side or are or are you a little more delighted with our hero's adventures in the underworld so far i've been enjoying it i thought i I personally think it's been a nice twist i've liked the i've liked um not just the hades character um and I've, i've liked the the, the story around Hades. I've liked the revisiting of other characters. I love like, like the introduce the introduction of, of the kind of the Greek mythology. Um, so I actually have been uh, enjoying it. Um, and it has, it has not been disappointing me so far. Yeah, I'd, I would, I would agree actually. And I think it, it hits actually on something that I really enjoyed from season five, a, which was going back to this idea of the dark one. I think the problem with Once Upon a Time sometimes is that they really want to surge forward. They want to put as much action and drama in the plot as possible. And I think what they took season five to do was to say, like, let's go back to some of these characters, conflicts and problems that we've built throughout our four season mythology. And I feel like doing that, you make the story and the characters even richer. And so you're able to revisit things like Regina and her father. 
Hook and his brother, you know, even things that we didn't know about, like Gaston and Belle or Snow White and Hercules or Zelina and Hades. Uh, I, I agree. I think Hades and Greg German is great. Um, I think he doesn't really hasn't really done anything to like pop out at me so far, but he's been very, very solid, which I'm excited about. The only downside for me so far with these six episodes are that I feel like the B and C storylines the past two episodes have been total weak sauce. Yeah. Um, last week with Charming and Snow calling the soul phone to baby or maybe adult Neil. And then this episode with Emma's dream. I just feel like that I would I would have rather seen more time dedicated to, you know, Hades and Zelina last week and then Belle Gold and Gaston this week because I feel like the A-plots have been super strong, super oriented in character. Looking back to the past is a great way to really ground these characters. So I have to disagree with Rachel as well. I've been really enjoying it so far and I'm excited to see even with Ruby now putting a, a big puzzle piece into a picture that we thought was almost kind of complete at this point. I'm excited to see where it goes from here. Yeah. So it's from, yeah, I've just, I've been enjoying the characters and the the development and it's, and look, I thought we had talked about how like um, as much as the, uh, there, there have been a couple points where they've tried to shoehorn in a flashback into a, something that we thought was already a complete picture. Uh, They haven't been doing that a whole lot. They've, they've done that. I think, aired more gratuitously in that in pre in previous seasons. Um, so I, I like that at least for the most part, they've been able to find good swaths of white space to kind of fill in with additional narrative. I, I enjoyed the guest on uh, uh, backstory that we, that we didn't necessarily have before. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm good with this. I'm, I'm good with this. I'm, I apologize, Kat, that, that you're not getting as much enjoyment out of it as we are, but uh, um, you know, obviously not, not everybody is going to like it. So, so you completely valid opinion on her point. So let's dive into a new segment here on Once Upon a Recap that I'd like to temporarily call uh, Theory Brook. Again, name patent pending. But we talked last week about how we wanted to hear your guys' thoughts and specifically theories about what you think may be the the answers to the big mysteries involving the show right now. We do have a couple. Uh, one is from Orikohab, who does a great job uh, leaving comments on our post-show recaps page every week. He's had a Hades theory going for a couple of weeks now, and he brought it up again last week. And I want to bring it up here and kind of discuss it a little bit. Uh, He says, you know, remember when I predicted Hades is being punished for his quote unquote illegal actions. There's also a possibility that he'll have a change of heart and actually punish himself, just like Ingrid did in season 4A. If that's the case, it would definitely have a lot to do with his love for Zelina and for his connection to the other gods, most likely Zeus. Speaking of Zeus, I see a huge parallel here to other stories of two brothers in which one is praised a lot by the father, whereas the other one is insanely jealous and is very under unappreciated by the father. Most of those stories have histories of the latter brother becoming evil after being punished by the father. Happens in many versions of the Thor Loki tale. Thor's hammer comes in play once again. And between Mufasa and Scar and the original Lion King story. My theory is... Hades was banished to the underworld because of something he did and that it has a huge connection to why he wants so badly to flood his world with souls. Now, Kurt, we talked last week a little bit about in Greek mythology, it was just that, hey, Poseidon, Zeus, and Hades basically kind of picked places out of a hat to take and Hades got the underworld. What Ori's implying here is that it's almost being given to him for a reason, that he's being punished for doing something. Do you feel at this point... 
Ori's theory holds water or, I guess, fire in this case? I mean, we definitely heard that, at least from, from the way that Hades told it. I mean, it, it, that it, the way Hades tells it, it does differ from I think, the traditional telling of Greek mythology that he's, he is here, he is being punished, he is looking to escape. I find it interesting that he's looking, he's not looking for, I think early on he was looking for escape, but I think what we may be shifting is that he's looking for redemption. And I think that might go in line a little bit more with, with what Ori is talking about is that I think, you know, maybe that's where some of these tales of brothers differ in some cases, one brother is looking for revenge. Another case, the wrong, the quote unquote wronged brother is looking for revenge. And other stories, the wronged brother is looking for redemption. I think what we have here with Hades is somebody who, uh, is potentially kind of reevaluating what it is that they're actually looking for. If he doesn't, if Zelina is indeed his weakness, if he did indeed, if he was indeed authentic about uh, hoping to find true love with her in last week's episode, then maybe it is a little bit more about a redemption story for Hades than it is about a revenge story. Which would be so interesting because again, Ori makes a great connection back to Ingrid, who for a long time we thought was, and we were confused as to what was going on until we got that big flashback episode where it turns out, you know, she basically accidentally killed one of her sisters. Uh, and she brought a lot of humanizing aspects to that. And she also absorbed all those, you know, the spell of Shattered Sight and all those fragments of glass and basically killed herself to save the town and her nieces. And it'd be really interesting to see Hades take that turn because, again, this is someone who is going into this, the lord of the underworld, and someone who has been pretty, I wouldn't say two-dimensional. He has had aspects of lusting after Zelina, but again, at this point, we're still not entirely sure if those are wholesome or not. But it would definitely bring a lot more sides to him than we initially expected. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I think that, you know, today's um, episode... So today uh, is a little bit more about him trying to replace hope with hopelessness, in which case is that that feels like it's a little bit of backtracking in terms of him being developed as a sympathetic character. Um, so, you know, maybe he is looking a little bit more for, you know, escape through revenge rather than escape through redemption. Um, but I think we've got a few more episodes to kind of, you know, plot out his trajectory. And we have a, another theory from Rachel here to close out our Theory Brooks segment, uh, which says her theory is Arthur and the gang will come to the underworld, defeat Hades, and make it the new Camelot, which I think would tie everything up in a neat little package. Deus, Deus Ex Arthur? Yes, Deus Ex Merlin. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, we still don't know what happened to the Camelotians. I, I, I'm, no. I'm still envisioning that in, in Storybrooke, there's like a really, really kind of authentic i almost said bad but no really really authentic kind of uh run fest that's like camped out in the outskirts of town now and it's bringing supplemental income to all of storybrook well i could just imagine that again all the powerful people left storybrook they're going to come back at the end of the season and see it's it has been turned into camelot and they're like oh right we forgot something before we left. Yeah. And then it'd be interesting if it was just like six a was about them trying to defeat Arthur again. And maybe Arthur has combined with the spirit of Hades to become this all powerful villain or something. But if you guys have theories or thoughts or, uh, you know, we asked a bunch of questions about when, when things have previously appeared. If you have answers to that, we always love to hear them. You can do it in a bunch of different ways. You can always leave comments on postshowrecaps.com like our friend Ori. Uh, you, while you're there, please subscribe to our Once Upon a Time only feed on postshowrecaps.com slash once iTunes. While you're there, uh, make sure you're uh, subscribed to all other Post Show Recaps stuff as well. Seinfeld's been going on, as always. Uh, SNL just wrapped up. It's rather interesting. Russell Crowe episode. 
episode. Uh, Better Call Saul is finishing up, but Fear the Walking Dead is just started. And of course, the megalith that is Game of Thrones, the aforementioned Game of Thrones, but with many stabbings in the back, I'm assuming, uh, not just with Dark One Daggers, will be coming back in a couple of weeks. And I know the, the road to Westeros, I believe, is uh, coming back as well with Rob and Josh, which should be very, very exciting. Uh, but that's going to do it for this week. Kurt, do we have a hashtag for people who have made it all the way to the end of this podcast? I've got a couple. I was initially thinking uh, once, once upon upon a, t- a time time. Uh, um, but uh, that might be trumped by Rumpel's baby back ribs. <laughs> Yep, definitely. I mean, we got to get our Chili's is, you know, we, we got we make the big bucks for Chili's. So we <laughs> yeah. have to put our product placement in there. So Rumpel's Baby Back Ribs. Follow us on Twitter. Kurt is at Kurt Clark. I am at a Mike Bloom type. But if you guys are going to the live Survivor Know-It-Alls event and you're listening to this in the couple of days after this podcast comes out, Kurt and I will both be there. The Once Upon a Time crew will be getting together in person. So if you happen to be there as well, come see us. Say hi. Talk to us about your your thoughts on the season. Uh, give us your best Rumpelstiltskin impression. We'd love to talk to you about anything and everything. Thank you guys so much, as always, for uh, for listening to this. We will be back next week, post-Know-It-Alls, to talk about some Ruby action. See exactly where she has been since we saw her in Dunbrock. So, hashtag Rumpel's baby back ribs. And remember, if you need to describe your situation at all, a Britney Spears song is probably the best way to do it. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.